uh, what an appropriate song for this weekend. And we're here today able to worship without fear of reprisal because somebody died for that freedom. Some of those folks may have been in your family or maybe your friends or your classmates. And we honor their memory this weekend. Thank God for that. And I'm thankful for that freedom, but there is a greater freedom that can never be taken away from us. And that's the freedom we have in Jesus Christ. Because he died for us. And thank God for that. Amen. Well, Nehemiah, this morning, if you remember, we have been in the book of Nehemiah. It's been a while. Um, I'm going to ask you to uh, join me there this morning. Um, If you can remember back to the first of the year, it seems like an eternity. Um, I started preaching through the book of Nehemiah in relation and connection to our forward theme. Me, uh, they were facing the same dilemma that we were facing uh, in that their governors were uh, banning in-person gatherings. Uh, so here we are, and we're back in the book of Nehemiah. I titled, or subtitled, I guess, or titled this series, Rebuild, Revive, Renew. Because that is exactly what happened in the history of Israel as recorded in the book of Nehemiah. The first thing that they did was rebuild. Uh, Jerusalem had been destroyed in approximately 586 B.C. by the Babylonians. And at that time, uh, the temple was demolished, the the walls of the city were broken down, and the gates of the city were burned. And on top of that, many of the leading Jews uh, were taken away and made captives in Babylon. But after several years, the Persians broke the Babylonian supremacy And actually allowed some of those Jews to return to Jerusalem, which they did. And once they got there, they began the rebuilding process. But the sheer magnitude of the task was so incredibly overwhelming that they just gave up. And years passed, the city still broken and burned was in dire need of rebuilding. Enter Nehemiah, a Jew still in exile, but one whose heart burned for Jerusalem. We learned in our study that Nehemiah was eventually allowed to return to Jerusalem. And he did so armed with a single focused objective to rally the people, rebuild their hope, and ultimately rebuild their holy city. 
And he did all of that in an amazing 52 days as recorded in the first seven chapters of the book of Nehemiah. And then beginning in chapter 8, Nehemiah's mission changed from building God's work to building God's people. Whereas his focus was on reconstructing the city's defense, it changed to revitalizing the city's spiritual community. Or we might say it this way, his focus went from rebuilding to reviving. And the revival began by instructing people how to deal with their sin. And Pastor Tyler did a masterful job, as always, um, conveying those principles from Nehemiah chapters 10, or excuse me, chapters 9 and 10. And just to, to recap really quickly what he taught in that message, when it comes to dealing with our sin, revival will never happen until, first of all, we confront our sin. That is, acknowledge that we are sinners and that there is sin in our life and not rationalizing it or justifying it or somehow excusing it, but coming face to face with the fact that I have sin in my life. Nehemiah brought that out to the people that there was sin in their lives. We read in chapter 7, we studied the, uh, the story of Achan and the consequences of sin in, in his life personally and, and what it brought to the nation of Israel corporately. And once we have confronted our sin, then we must confess our sin, not to a man, amen, but to Jesus. We, we, go, to, we go to the Father through the Son, and Jesus is the mediator, not some man out there somewhere that supposedly we confess our sin to and then he takes them somewhere and does something with them. Our confession is to Jesus. And then the third step is taught by Pastor Tyler is then we forsake our sin. And so that brings us now to chapter 11 which honestly, most Bible readers would be really tempted to just sit some explanation, a little idea of what's going on here. Um, and then, as I said, with the Lord's help, I, I want to make some, some modern-day application of, of this story. So join me, if you would, Nehemiah chapter 11 and verse 1. If you're there, say, let's go. All right. And the rulers of the people dwelt at Jerusalem. The rest of the people also cast lots to bring one of ten to dwell in Jerusalem, the holy city, and nine parts to dwell in other cities. So now that the walls and the gates of Jerusalem have been restored, it was important that the Jews inhabit their capital city 
and to begin making the population grow. Earlier in our study in chapter 7 and verse 4, we read this. Now the city was, was large and great, but the people were few. And evidently that was still the case as we for people to live in the small outlying villages that were no threat at all to the enemies of, of Jerusalem and to the Jews. But somebody, listen, somebody had to take the risk and move into the big city. Also, if the people really loved God and their city, you would think that they would want to live there. If for no other reason, just to be a witness to the skeptical Gentiles around them. You remember, you remember the, the skepticism and all the people that were laughing at Nehemiah. And what are you doing? You'll never get this done and this will never work. And, and, and on and on and on and on. They were just skeptical and they were critical and they were making fun. Listen, if for no other reason you would have thought, hey, we're going to move in there and we're going to show those people that they were wrong. I mean, after all, why, why rebuild a city if you don't plan to occupy it? But most of all, God had brought a remnant back home because he had a special job for them to do. And to abandon the restored city was to obstruct the working out of God's will for Israel. In other words, God needed people. I'm talking live bodies in the holy city. The nation's leaders were already dwelling there. But that wasn't enough for the city to function properly. Now from what, uh, what we just read, one of the ways that, that Nehemiah got people to move back into the city of Jerusalem was by casting lots. Now, my, my understanding and my best explanation to you of this whole casting lots things would be this. It was like drawing straws. You ever done that? Rolling dice, whatever. I don't know if the, the guy that ended up with, with the short straw... Moved into the city, I, I, I don't know how it works. But that was one way that, that Nehemiah began repopulating the city is one out of every ten families would be required to live within the walls of Jerusalem. But then there was a, another way that the city was repop, repopulated and that was by people stepping up and volunteering. Look at verse 2. And the people blessed all the men that willingly offered themselves to dwell at Jerusalem. Now, some people believe that these two groups, in the group in chapter, verse 1, the group in verse 2, were, were the same people. But I would, I would submit to you this morning that being required... To live in Jerusalem because you got the short end of the stick is hardly being willing to do it. And so my opinion is that we have two separate groups of people here. And I'm assuming that the willing ones 
were people who loved their city. They were people who saw the value of what Nehemiah was trying to accomplish. And they just stepped forward and said, hey, count me in. I want to be part of the group. I want to be part of what makes God's will and Nehemiah's vision for this place to happen. Count me in. And you know that that had to have been a blessing to Nehemiah's heart. As you continue to read the remaining 34 verses of this chapter and all of the verses of the next chapter, you find that it, it, it took a, a, a variety of people with a variety of skills to maintain the ministry in Jerusalem. You'll find that the priest officiated at the altar assisted by the Levites. There were those who supervised the maintenance of the building while others ministered in prayer and praise and both, by the way, were important. There were nearly 300 men appointed to guard the temple because that's where the tithes and offerings were stored. And it was important, as you can imagine, that the building be protected. So to use a phrase that has become very popular in the last couple of months, there were no non-essential workers. As I read through and studied this passage, the need for people to be in Jerusalem and the role that each of them played reminded me of the church today. For example, like moving into Jerusalem, being in church is essential. And can I just, can I just say this, and I promise, I'll say it and, and I'll move on, I'll, I'll not belabor the point too much. But not only is being in church essential, and I'm going to talk about that in just a moment, but folks, would you listen to me carefully this morning? It is also constitutional. Prohibiting churches from gathering in person is a clear violation of the Constitution, even during a pandemic. And the links to which some leaders are going to prohibit churches from meeting, in my opinion, is ridiculous. I mean, in some cases, it's like using a sledgehammer to kill a mosquito. It's just overboard. If you've been keeping up with any of this nonsense, and you know that there have been threats of arrest and actual arrests that have been made. There have been threats of monetary fines and actual monetary fines. There have been threats, check this out, there have been threats to close churches indefinitely. I believe it was the governor of New York who said that, if you go, I will close your church like forever. Forever. 
Folks, listen to me this morning. These are not things that should be happening in the United States of America. And I am so glad to see pastors, I'm talking from sea to shining sea, standing up and forcing overbearing leaders to back down. It is a sad day in America when bars and liquor stores and marijuana dispensaries can be open because they're considered essential, but churches can't. And that's not to mention places like Walmart and Target and Home Depot and Lowe's. I'm telling you, it's a travesty. Preacher, would you get back to the Bible? Yes, I will. Right now. If you were to ask the average person on the street, I mean, just go knock on 10 or 20 doors in your neighborhood or go stand at Walmart or go to work tomorrow and, and just ask the average person if church is essential, then you, you would get a wide range of answers. Some people would just absolutely laugh at you because to them, church is not essential ever in any way, shape, or form. They think you being here, you're an idiot. They think you're an idiot for giving your time and your money to church. Some of you have family that are like that. Others would see church in the same category as, let's say, museums. They're a nice place to visit, but they're out of touch with our modern world. Some might couch their answer in political terms. Well, yeah, it's essential because it is a powerful voting block. And no doubt there would be some who would concede that church is essential but only as a social institution. That is, it helps meet the physical needs of the poor and the emotional needs of the lonely and distraught. They they would say the church is good because it ministers to people in pivotal moments of life like birth and marriage and death and, and, and times of crisis. But to be honest with you, beyond that, yeah. I really don't have any need for the church. But the truth about church and why it's essential is this. Church is all about being a community where inspiration to do greater good takes place. It's a place where deeper love is explored, where enriching relationships occur, where authentic living is the goal. Church is supposed to be a community where individuals are cared for, where gifts and abilities are used effectively, where people are challenged to to grow beyond themselves. Let me give you real quick four thoughts as to why church is essential. Number one, we tend to drift spiritually when not connected relationally. Let me say that again. We tend to drift spiritually 
when not connected relationally. Listen, I don't know why I keep reminding you of this, but I've been at this like 40 years almost. And I think I've got a pretty good handle on this. Because I've seen it over and over and over again. Time after time after time. When we are removed from a community of believers for any reason, for any reason, whether it's work-related or health-related or or pandemic-related, or just out of pure laziness and slothfulness. When we are removed from a community of believers, the human mind then begins to rationalize. You know, I love God, and God loves me. I don't need to go to church. And that's true. But it's only a half-truth. And half-truths often lead us down a dangerous road. The other half is the the overwhelming evidence that when you are connected to a group of committed believers, the likelihood of your continual spiritual growth is exponentially higher. In other words, church is essential because this is where you grow. Number two, Christianity was never intended to be an independent endeavor. The nature of Christianity is essentially relational. Christianity was never intended to be a lone ranger proposition. Listen, we need each other. I need to see you. And I'm thankful for... uh, Brother Troy's thumbs up and heart last week, and, and, and I saw all of those when, when I was watching myself. You talk about awkward, watching yourself preach on Facebook. Do you guys realize I'm losing my hair? Listen. Seeing your comments and your hearts and your thumbs up and all of those things. Listen to me this morning. That is not the same as Marlon Meisenheimer walking down the middle of the aisle and looking at me and saying, I'm not scared. And I hugged him and he hugged me. I'm telling you, that's what it's about. That's what it's about. There are no perfect Christians. We know that. There are no perfect churches, but together we help each other become the persons God intended us to be. You help me, and I hope I help you. Number three, our shared gifts, talents, and resources make us stronger. None of us are as strong alone as we are together. That is a biblical principle that is taught in the book of Ephesians chapter 4 and Romans chapter 12 and 1 Corinthians chapter 12. All of those chapters paint a a great picture of how we work together and strengthen one another. And besides all of those things, the church is God's ordained institution for reaching the world with the gospel. The Great Commission, which is found in Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and the book of Acts was given in the context of the local church. Now, if church is God's idea, 
then for believers, it's worth more than an academic consideration or participation during the holidays or just when it's convenient. Your life becomes deeper and richer as you give your whole heart. Would have done. <laughs> My pastor would have said, hey, you can stick it in your eye. We're going to church. Those that were back here in 1981, somebody say amen right there. He had been the first one in jail. And then as he taught us many times, Brother Monty, there better be a staff member that gets up in the pulpit when I'm gone. And when he goes to jail, there better be another staff member that gets in the pulpit after I'm gone. And when I'm gone and the staff members are gone, there better be a deacon that gets up and stands in the pulpit. And there better be another. I mean, that's, that's, that was Fellowship Baptist Church in 1981. I'm not so sure that was all bad. But I'm thankful for the technology that has allowed us to, to meet virtually these several weeks. But church, I'm just sharing my heart with you this morning that I would be less than honest if I said that I did not have some concerns about it over an extended period of time. Last Saturday, I answered a phone call from a, a young church planter, planted a church six years ago, whom I'd never met, who poured his heart out to me because of some people problems that this whole online thing has created. I mean, he's got a lady in his church that's sharing on Facebook about where all of these people ought to, be, ought to be going on Sunday morning and who they ought to be listening to on Sunday morning. And not one time has she ever mentioned her church who's having online church. But she sure promotes T.D. TD Jakes. That's a whole other message for another time. But he, he's a young church planner, six years in. And, and these are real problems. These are real issues. His song leader is not, even, is not even staying at home viewing his own pastor preach. He's going down the road and helping his brother with a parking lot service. And Brother Prater, what do I do? And I said, well, listen, preacher. Here's the first thing you need to do. You need to, you need to be a blessing to those that are there. Let God deal with those that aren't. But I just share that with you this morning to say this. That this virtual thing is creating issues that preachers are going to have to deal with. Uh, a pastor who, who I am familiar with uh, from the Fort Worth area, Pastor Tyler Gillett, posted this and I reposted it recently on Facebook. And I listen, I believe he is dead on. Here's what he said. The next few months will reveal if we've been making disciples or creating consumers. Online services are a temporary necessity. But have attendees become accustomed to the ease of worshiping at home? Okay, time out. Let's just be honest this morning. It was a whole lot easier staying home and going to church than it was coming here this morning. Come on now. I'm going to come down there. Some of you ain't listening. 
I'm just being honest. It's a whole lot easier. You don't, you don't have to get up. Some of you don't have to comb your hair. You don't have to put on makeup. You don't have to, you don't have to change clothes. You don't have to get your kids ready for church. You can eat in the living room and drink your coffee. Come on now. Let's just be easy. Brother Marlon said this to me this morning. He said, preacher, that's the lazy way to go to church. Amen. Amen. Some of you young parents, you, 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 uh, you haven't had to deal with, it with, with getting six kids together. Is that right, Brother Aaron? Brother Aaron? Six kids together. Amen. I mean, it's easy. And that's the question that he asked. Have attendees become accustomed to the ease of worshiping from home? And then he went on to say this. No, back one. Will they return when it's reasonable? When they return, will they serve? Will they sacrifice for mission? He said, I think the answer to those questions depends on the philosophy of our ministries before this crisis began. And then he included this quote from a man named Jason Mandrick. He said, making participation in church life as easy as possible probably had good motives originally. But effortless accessibility means that spiritual entertainment rather than active discipleship becomes a default mode for many. One of the things that that young preacher said to me was, Brother Brady, we don't have the wherewithal to to have these mass production online services on Sunday. We don't have the music that some of these others have. And listen, that's a a problem that our own church planners have faced. I mean, when you're just starting out, you don't have all the ministries everybody else has. You can't make a production like, like, like some do every Sunday. And he said, before this whole online church thing became in vogue, he said, my people didn't even know those things existed. My heart goes out to him. Listen, there are pastors just like that young man, and they're not all church planters. There are some established churches and seasoned veteran pastors all over this nation who are concerned with whether or not they're going to have any nursery workers or Sunday school teachers or musicians or ushers or workers of any kind by the time this whole pandemic is over. And their concerns are rightly founded if, if their ministry focus pre-pandemic was on making church easy. If they were constantly looking for ways to make serving Jesus easier and more convenient, then yes, I'm sorry, they, they, they ought to be lying awake at night wondering what they're going to do. Church, listen to me this morning. Serving Jesus has never been about easy or convenient. 
It's been about denying self and taking up a cross daily as a disciple, not a spectator or a consumer. For many Jews in our text, what would have been the easiest and the most convenient would have been to stay where they were in one of the outlying villages rather than moving into the city. Because to live in Jerusalem, they would have to reorder their view of material things. Because they would have to to give up their land in their previous region. And they were going to have to take up some kind of new business in Jerusalem. To live in Jerusalem, they had to rearrange their social priorities. Probably leaving some friends and family behind in their old village. To live in Jerusalem, they had to have a a mind to endure the problems in the city. It had been a ghost town for 70 years and was now basically a slightly rebuilt, somewhat repopulated ghost town. The city didn't look all that glorious and it still needed some work. To live in Jerusalem, they had to live knowing that they were a target for the enemy. Yes, there were strong walls to protect them. But since Jerusalem was was now a notable city again with rebuilt walls, the fear was more from entire armies coming against them than small bands of robbers. The old village was nice and far less danger from great armies. You with me today? For some, staying at home and watching church may be easier and it may be more convenient. Listen to me today, that is not God's idea of assembly. Again, I mentioned Brother Marlon. We had a great conversation, obviously, prior to church. And and I I gave this illustration uh, several weeks ago. And I I still say it, that, that going to church online is like kissing a picture of your wife. It's just not the same. Now, I'm just shooting straight with you today. I didn't, I didn't sit in my chair at home and enthusiastically and, and energetically sing the songs. And if you did, praise God for you. But I'm just being honest, Pastor I didn't. I didn't do that. Listen, there's just, there is an intangible that just is not there online. Am I okay? You guys are looking at me like, I don't know, preacher. There is just something intangible. You can't put your finger on it. But that's why God wanted people to assemble together in the church building. Well, preacher, don't you know the church is just a building? Well, duh, yeah, I do. 
But I know that people are important. And we don't have to assemble in a building. We can assemble on the parking lot. We can assemble out in that field. It's being mowed for a fortune. Anybody know of any goats? We may turn Eli, our intern, into a goat herder. That's not even in my notes. And listen. Staying at home and watching church may be less risky. Listen, I'm trying to be as kind as I can. But at some point, and and how people can choose to put a date on it, I have no idea. But at some point, faith must overrule fear. Because like moving into Jerusalem, church is essential. I was thinking about this yesterday. And, 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 and I'm serious about that. I want to, if, if you have family and friends that, that, that just aren't, I mean, they, even though we're having two services, there's just still a lot of people. And I'm dead serious here. We have seven, at least seven entrances and exits into the building. We have at least seven entrances and exits in and out of the auditorium. And if just being around a lot of people is an issue for them, there are seven ways they can get into the, into the building and into the auditorium. And, and probably five out of those seven, they won't see anybody. We've got the chairs assembled in a way that, that it's safe. Come on, church. And thank you for being here. Like moving into Jerusalem, volunteers are needed. As we read in verse 1, the the rulers were already living in Jerusalem, as they should have been. They couldn't have really expected anyone else to live there if they weren't. I mean, after all, leaders ought to lead by example. And I'm thankful today for the leaders in this church, in the fellowship family, who do just that. A variety of people, as I said earlier, are represented in the names mentioned in this chapter and in the next chapter. Some were leaders, some were workers, some served in the temple while others served outside the gates of the city to offer protection. Some prayed while others praised. I mean, it was just a diverse group who willingly used their giftedness and their abilities to make things work. And can I tell you this morning, it's no different at Fellowship Baptist Church. Every week, we have a multitude of people with various talents and abilities who willingly use them by God's grace and for His glory. I just did a little checking this week with, with our ministry leaders. And, and, and here's, here's what I came to. You may know this, you may not know this. But did you know we have 25 men who serve on a rotating basis in the spring and summer to trim, edge, and mow our property every Friday or Saturday? 
We have 14 men who, again, serve on a rotating basis, who walk throughout this facility every Sunday morning, every Sunday night, every Wednesday night, every time we assemble to make sure that we're secure. We have four men in, in the back who, who help seat people every service. We have some, some 70 people, counting the choir and the musicians, who bless us. Amen. Who bless us week after week after week with good music and usher us into the presence of God. We have 25 people who rotate every month or so who are greeters. We have eight smiling faces. I didn't say good looking faces. I said eight smiling faces who serve in the parking lot every service. Check this out. We have some 120 people who serve in children's ministry at Fellowship Baptist Church. We have 12 adults who lead Bible classes. We have 13 men who rotate every Sunday and who serve this ministry as treasurers. And if you'll read Nehemiah chapter 12, references made there to treasurers. We have five deacons, five trustees, three men who work in some form or fashion with the sound ministry. We have six men and women who serve in the media ministry. We have, hey, hey, we need to clap after I say this. We have a, it takes a minimum a minimum of 112 people every month to man slash woman our three nurseries. Somebody say amen right there. Amen. Absolutely. Praise the Lord. Hey, there are six people who will gladly take your money in the cake of faith. There are nine people who serve with Brother Tanner and Taryn volunteer in the youth ministry, 16 who work on the buses. Listen to me, that represents over 450 volunteers who willingly give of their time to serve the Lord in some capacity weekly or monthly in this ministry. Praise God. And it's not always easy. And it's not always convenient, but it is always necessary. Here's the third thought, and we'll move on. We'll be done. Like moving to Jerusalem, everybody is somebody in the body. Now, I know I've said that a lot as your pastor, but it's true. If God has chosen to put you in this body of believers. He's done so for a purpose. And listen. I stood up there this morning and overlooked the auditorium. And these chairs hold themselves down. So that's not your purpose. For being put in the body of Christ. Called Fellowship Baptist Church. I'm not sure how many people actually populated Jerusalem at this point in time. 
Uh, Nehemiah shares some numbers with us. He said there are 928 families from the tribe of Benjamin. There were 468 from the tribe of Judah. And I'm sure that there were more. But listen to this. They're not all named. Does that mean that, that they weren't important? No, absolutely not. Everybody was somebody in the city of Jerusalem. Listen to me, please. Never underestimate the importance of simply being physically present in the place where God wants you. You may not be asked to perform some dramatic, upfront, visible ministry. But listen, simply being here is a ministry. Number one, it is a blessing to your pastors. Thank you for being here today. This is encouraging coming through what we've come through. It's encouraging. Just by being here and interacting with others. Listen, you never know how something you say may be just what they needed to hear. Your being here, I'm almost done. Your being here is a testimony to others in your family and to your friends and to your neighbors that Jesus is important to you and that you believe the church that he died for is essential and if that's your belief today say amen now I know that this hasn't been the the kind of, of message that would elicit a large move of God's people to the altar but if the Lord has spoken to you in some way then obviously I would encourage you to come. Listen, if for nothing else, just to say thank you, Lord, for letting us meet again. Thank you, Lord, for my church family and the friends you've given me to serve with. Let's pray. Lord, I echo the words of the psalmist. Who said, I was glad when they said unto me, let us go into the house of the Lord. Father, I'm thankful for those who have gotten up and come into the house of the Lord. And God, I pray. That we would never, never, ever have to go through this again. Lord, I'm thankful for the, the faithful people who before this pandemic ever hit were willingly giving up themselves every week to be here and to minister and to be a blessing. Lord, thank you for them. God, thank you for letting us be here today. Thank you for the opportunity and privilege to pastor this extraordinary group of people. Lord, thank you for being good to us. In Jesus' name.
Amen. As Pastor Tyler sings, God spoke into your heart, you come to that.